voter suppression is dangerous because our democracy allocates power to every citizen. And that power allocation is expressed in who we pick to speak for us. When you live in a representative democracy, we don't get queried on everything we want. What we do instead is pick people and we say, go speak for us, do the listening, sit in the meetings, and then let us know what you did. But if we do not have the right to vote, if that right to vote isn't real, then we can never pick representatives who share our values, who understand our challenges, and who work for our progress. And so voter suppression is all about stopping our voices from being heard by blocking us from being able to pick people who will actually serve our needs. Every American has an equal voice in our our democratic... Sorry, I couldn't get that out with a straight face. This is a show about money and power. Today, we're focusing on power and looking at how power in our democracy is distributed. Voter suppression is intentionally preventing or discouraging people from exercising their right to vote. This can happen through legislation, propaganda, and blatant threats of physical violence. Or it can be insidiously woven into seemingly benevolent law. Stacey Abrams really gets voter suppression. Not just because she's a long-time studied expert in it, running like five different advocacy groups about it, and she is, but because she faced it herself in an extremely public way. Well, my name is Stacey Abrams. I am not the governor of Georgia. Unfortunately, my opponent in the general election was the man in charge of the election, the Secretary of State. And Brian Kemp had held that position for eight years. During that time, he had overseen the closure of 214 precincts, meaning that between 54 and 85,000 people physically could not vote. He was responsible for purging more than 1.4 million voters, at least half a million of which should not have been purged, except for the fact that they'd chosen not to vote in a few elections. He held hostage 53,000 voter registration applications using a disgraced and discriminatory system called Exact Match. 80% of that 53,000, 80% of those people were people of color, and 70% were African-American. And so instead of having a fair election where I ran on my planks, he ran on his planks, I ran against the guy who was the referee, the scorekeeper, and the contestant. And shockingly, he won. But Brian Kemp didn't invent voter suppression. And Stacey Abrams didn't invent fighting back. Voter suppression has been baked into American politics since the beginning of time, or since at least the beginning of the country. But according to the Constitution, according to, like, what it says in the Voting Rights Act, in 2020, all Americans should have equal access to the ballot. But voting allocates power. My belief is that we have to say, yeah, you're not paranoid. They really are after you. But here's what we can do about it. And that's why I am so vocal about voter suppression. Pardon the grammatical disaster that is the title of this episode within our naming conventions, but this is important. Who is voter suppression? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we talk about power through the stories of people who have it. 
Today, we're looking at the mechanisms by which Americans determine the people who represent them. It's a conversation on voter suppression. So I've got the Constitution pulled up, and according to this thing, every American citizen should legally be able to vote in elections. Black men could legally vote with the 15th Amendment, women in the 19th, poll taxes were eliminated with the 24th, and the voting age was lowered to 18 with the 26th. Voter suppression is as old as America, and you can see that history in the number of amendments that deal directly with barriers to voting. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was one of the many victories of the civil rights movement. After he signed the bill into law, President Lyndon Baines Johnson said, This law covers many pages, but the heart of the act is plain. Wherever, by clear and objective standards, states and counties are using regulations or laws or tests to deny the right to vote, then they will be struck down. If it is clear that state officials still intend to discriminate, then federal examiners will be sent in to register all eligible voters. When the prospect of discrimination is gone, the examiners will be immediately withdrawn. And under this act, if any county anywhere in this nation does not want federal intervention, it need only open its polling places to all of its people. In the United States, each state can run its elections how it sees fit, for the most part. It's a highly decentralized, highly localized system. But states and localities can't discriminate against certain groups of voters. And before the Voting Rights Act of 1965, there'd been a lot of issues. Notably, that bill included a provision that said that certain states and counties with a history of racially-based voter discrimination would have to submit any new voting laws or redistricting to the Justice Department for approval. You know, like how bad teenagers have to run everything by their parents. But today, no matter how illegal it is, voter suppression happens. And it goes all the way back to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. In 2013, five former lawyers wearing robes in a secret chamber kinda broke democracy. The Supreme Court ruled 5-3 to three in a case, Shelby County v. Holder. Here's Stacey Abrams. So Shelby County versus Holder was a case that in 2013 essentially said that all the states that used to discriminate during voting, that they'd fix themselves, they were cured, no more racism, no need for this rule. Shelby County, Alabama sued to skip what was called pre-clearance approval. Here's a clip from the actual Supreme Court hearings. You're going to hear Burt Rhine. He was the lawyer representing Shelby County. And I think the problem to which it, the Voting Rights Act was addressed is solved. You look at the registration, you look at the voting, that problem is solved on an absolute as well as a relative basis. So that's like saying, if I detect that there's a disease afoot in the population in 1965 and I have a treatment, a radical treatment that may help cure that disease, when it comes to 2005 and I see a new disease, or I, I think the old disease is gone, there's a new one, why not apply the old treatment? Well, but Mr. I wouldn't, Fine, I wouldn't, that, is, that is the question, isn't it? You said the problem has been solved. But who gets to make that judgment, really? Is it you? Is it the court? Or is it Congress? Well, it is certainly not me. Uh, that, that's, a good, <laughs> that's a good answer. I, I was hoping you'd say <laughs> 
Supreme Court cases are often more remembered for the precedents they set than the actual parties involved, but Shelby County itself highlights why the Supreme Court really gummed this one up. What had happened in Shelby County, Alabama, was that there had been a growth in communities of color. They had been able to accrue a bit of power in this, this county, and Shelby County didn't want them to have this power. The white power structure said, no, we don't want this diversity. And so they redrew their political lines to force out the people of color who had been able to organize themselves and elect representatives for themselves. When they made that decision, the Obama administration challenged them and said, no, you didn't follow the process. You had to get permission before you did this. And Shelby County sued and said, we shouldn't have to get permission because we should be able to do what we want. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court, led by John Roberts, essentially said, well, you haven't been terribly racist in recent years, so we're just going to let you govern yourself. The problem with that is that racism never left. What held it in check, what held in check all of those attempts to suppress voters was the requirement that you had to get permission before you could do bad. What the Roberts Court said in the Supreme Court decision was, yes, states, you were bad actors. Southern states, you were deeply racist. Western states, you were specifically oppressive of Latinos and Native Americans. Southern states, northern states, a lot of you just didn't like black people ever, and you've done things to stop them from voting. Uh, states where you had a lot of young people, you've done things to block their access. But we trust you now. Go on about your business. So. What happened was the floodgates opened. Literally the moment the provisions were changed, jurisdictions that had previously had to ask the Justice Department for permission when they made changes to voting or redistricting started making changes. Within hours of the Shelby County decision, the state of Texas implemented voter suppressive tactics. Bills that had already passed state legislature and had failed Justice Department preclearance were ready to go. It wasn't just Texas. Alabama also implemented a new voter ID law in 24 hours. And the legislation just kept coming across the country. And it had a huge impact on how Americans vote today. Over the next two years, we saw more than 1,600 polling places shut down. And let me tell you why that matters. When you shut down a polling place, you stop people from being able to physically cast their ballot. And the problem with American democracy is that we don't have one democracy. We have 50 different states that get to interpret and produce the democracy they want. So if you live in a state where you can vote anywhere or you can vote by mail, you may scoff at the question of the polling place shutting down. But imagine if you live in rural Georgia or rural Iowa and they shut down the one polling place you can get to. You don't own a car, you don't have public transit, and you don't have a friend who can take time off of work to take you to go and vote. And you're not allowed to vote by mail because only 34 states let you vote by mail with no excuses. Then for that person, there is no right to vote. And that repeats itself over and over again. As I said, in Georgia, just the shutting down of 214 polling places meant that between 54 and 85,000 people physically could not get to the polls. And if you multiply that across this country and you think about all the different ways states are blocking access 
for young people, for the elderly, for the poor, for communities of color, then you start to see how that can hold a very large sway over the outcome of our elections. Picture in your head a state or county that has discriminatory voting practices. What do you imagine? It's not what you think. These practices are a problem everywhere. Counties in New York, Michigan, and California were also previously subject to the Voting Rights Act. We have to stop thinking about voter suppression being about region. It's about power. It's about power and the people in power who want to maintain it. But voter suppression today doesn't look like it did in the 1950s and 1960s, for the most part. What we have seen for the last 20 years has been this very administrative, almost mundane form of voter suppression. And while Georgia was a singular example of how terrible it is, this happens across the country. Uh, And voter suppression is three forms. Does it block you from registering or staying on the voting rolls? Does it block you from casting a ballot? And are you blocked from having that ballot counted? And so part of my mission is for people to know that it may look like bureaucratic nonsense, but it's really an intentional attempt to block you from being heard. So exact match is a perfect example. In Georgia, exact match said that when you filled out your voter registration information, it was going to be matched against a database. If there was any inconsistency, they would blame you. They would kick your registration out and they wouldn't tell you what the problem was. Well, this was incredibly bad for communities of color because their last names tend to have punctuation. The spellings may differ. Uh, If you're a woman, you may have a hyphen. And so, as I said, 80% of the people who were denied registration were people of color. Uh, Another example is uh, voter ID. That's the question of can you cast the ballot? Because often you have to show your ID when you go to vote. Well, every state has always had some form of identification. You always have to prove who you are. What's happened in the last 20 years is how strict your proof has become. If you lived in Wisconsin in 2015 when they passed voter ID, they require that you prove, you show your original birth certificate. Well, there's a story of a woman who was 100 years old, a black woman born during Jim Crow. She had been able to vote in Wisconsin for decades. But because she was born in Missouri during segregation, she wasn't permitted to be born in a hospital, which means she was not given an original birth certificate. And in 2016, for the first time, she was told that she could not prove who she was and could not vote. She could show you a census from the 1930s with her name in it, but Wisconsin suddenly said that even though she'd been a loyal voter and a loyal citizen, it didn't count. These types of rules are called facially neutral because the language doesn't explicitly discriminate against any particular group. But in actuality, the effect of these laws makes it more difficult for certain groups of people to vote. And there's a long history of supposedly non-discriminatory laws introduced in response to expansions of the electorate, such as after the ratification of the 15th Amendment. If you're thinking about the 15th Amendment, it said that you cannot discriminate based on race. So the Mississippi plan said, fine, we won't say race, we won't mention it. But we'll come up with all of these things, all of these rules that on their face, and facially, on their face, when you just look at them, 
doesn't mention race, so it should be okay. So one rule, one of the most famous is the grandfather clause. Uh, people have used that term, but what it referred to was that poll taxes were put in place. A poll tax was exactly what it sounds like. If you wanted to cast a ballot, you had to pay a tax at the county office to be permitted to vote. And they said you had to pay the tax no matter who you were, so it was facially neutral. Everyone had to pay the tax, except if your grandfather was permitted to vote, then you are exempted from the tax. Well, this is post-slavery. So if you were black, there was no way your grandfather was permitted to vote. So only white people got to benefit from this. So only white men got to escape paying this tax. And let's be clear, this tax could be a month's wages. And so black people, black men could not vote, even though the law said they were allowed to, because states, as I said earlier, states get to decide how they administer elections. Southern states in particular, although some northern states did this too, they use a facially neutral rule saying everybody had to pay the tax, but then they manipulated the rule so it only applied to black people. Here's one fascinating example of a facially neutral law from history. Before 1880 or so, voters who were mostly white men voted by literally walking onto an elevated platform, shouting who they wanted to vote for, and then a guy wrote it in a book. Secret ballots were introduced as a result of a perception that this system of open voting was corrupt, bribery was rampant, and that voters were at risk of coercion and intimidation. But written secret ballots introduced an implicit literacy test. And each step of the new process offered opportunities for the suppression of the vote. In South Carolina, for example, individual ballot boxes for individual races were continuously shuffled. And if a vote was put in the wrong box, it wouldn't count. Southern states began adopting literacy tests designed to disenfranchise black voters in the 1890s. And it wasn't until 1970, five years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, that Congress banned literacy tests nationwide. If you fast forward to today, we've got issues like felony disenfranchisement. Mass incarceration disproportionately affects people of color, largely black and brown folks. We know that it has a disproportionate effect on people of color. Voter ID. It seems facially neutral. We want everyone to have this form of ID, but if getting that form of ID is impossible for certain communities, like Native Americans in North Dakota, like Black folks in almost any state that has these restrictions, then while on its face, it, does, it applies to everyone, its application actually only applies to the communities they're trying to force out of the process. Then again, a skeptic may argue that felon is a race-neutral category. Same thing with voter ID. Everyone can get an ID, right? In North Dakota, if you were Native American in 2018, the Supreme Court allowed the state of North Dakota to require that your ID have a residential address on it. No big deal. Unless you're Native American and you live on a reservation, because the state has to give you that address or the local government, and they wouldn't. And so they had a rule that they refused to comply with. So thousands of Native Americans were denied the right to vote. Another example, a Texas law made by a majority Republican state legislature said you can't vote with a student ID, but you can vote 
with a gun license. More after this. Voter suppression isn't just happening in the South, and it isn't just happening to Black Americans. To really understand how voter suppression affects different communities, I spoke with Natalie Landreth, a senior attorney at the Native American Rights Fund who works specifically on voting rights. NARF recently surveyed Indian voters to see what their experience was like. It was almost like a board game where you would have a blockade at every different level that you got to, or, you know, like an old electronic video game or whatever. And you have these uh, uh, hurdles that you have to cross. So registration was just the first one. Once people get to register, the problems, the second set of problems begin. And those problems are access to a polling place. The vast majority of reservations do not have polling places on their reservation. So this means that people then have to drive to the nearest polling place. And those of us who work in Indian country know that that creates two further problems. One is that most reservations, people will have access issues to transportation. Uh, some places in South Dakota, Nevada, and Arizona, almost 40% of the population does not have access to a car. How are they going to drive to a polling place? It needs to be on the reservation where the tribe can often arrange free transport. The fact that states control election laws and that they can limit access to in-person polling places is such a powerful tool because if they make it far enough, people are just not going to be able to vote. The other issue with having people go off reservation is that it usually means it's in a border town. Now that's code for those of us that work in Indian country, there can often be a lot of racial tensions. So we found in our research that in some of these border towns, there would be armed police officers standing at the door of the polling place, one hand on the gun, uh, waving at people as they came in. Um, that is not a scenario where you want to set up a polling place. The other is that some engaged in more blatant voter intimidation by actually putting the off-reservation polling place in a police station. Um, and then the people at the station would run your license plates while you were in voting. Now, who do you think is going to, who's going to do that? That's uncomfortable, even if you have absolutely no record whatsoever. It's at the very least extremely awkward. Absentee voting is even worse because the vast majority of reservations, I shouldn't say vast, let me correct myself. A majority of people on reservations are not getting regular home mail delivery. They have to go to a PO box, they have to go to town, many of them don't have street addresses. So they face then more barriers if they're gonna be in a situation where they're trying to vote absentee. None of these rules say native people can't vote, but as Natalie Landreth said, the effect of these rules is an almost video game-like series of barriers for Native voters to surmount. Probably the strangest example that we found was a community that had advocated for an on-reservation polling place. And what the county did, because again, so much control is at the local level for location access, what the county decided to do was to say, okay, fine, you can have a polling place, but we're not putting it on your reservation. We're putting it across the street from your reservation. And what they did was they set it in a chicken coop, so which had a dirt floor, egg boxes still in it, so that you had to stoop and vote in a location with a dirt floor. It was clearly intended to humiliate people, and we were really shocked. 
chicken coop, that's a figure of speech, right? It wasn't actually a chicken coop. No, it was actually a chicken coop. It was actually a chicken coop. When I want to go vote, I walk literally around the corner and into my polling place. The whole thing usually takes less than 10 minutes, shorter if I don't go during rush hour. Why is my community served so much better when voting should be equally available to all? I was asked in 2005, I believe, uh, how is Alaska complying with the Voting Rights Act? And I said, I don't know. I've never read the Voting Rights Act. What's, What's it about? And so we had to start from ground zero. And when we completed our report in 2006, I was told, we're going to need you to come testify in Congress about what's going on in Alaska. So I had to go to Congress. I didn't even own a suit at the time. I had to buy one on the way to the airport and go testify and explain to the Senate Judiciary Committee what was going on in Alaska and how people were dragging ballot boxes across a frozen river to the village on the other side. And I got some pretty pointed questions that I found pretty ignorant. And one of them was, all of this sounds, they said to me, Ms. Landreth, all of this sounds anecdotal. Do you have any actual evidence of any sort of widespread voter suppression in Alaska? Any evidence of discrimination at all? Because this doesn't cut it. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the question I was given. And I was so bothered by that, and that's putting it mildly, that I apparently slid all of the papers to the side, shoved my very loud drink with ice to the side, leaned into the microphone, held up my finger like my mother, and said, every time you conduct an English-only election in a place that doesn't speak English, you are committing tens of thousands of acts of discrimination. And then I said, next question. And from that moment, I, it occurred to me that this was not an accident, that there are systems designed to make it hard for you to be able to vote. And that's when we said, this is what we're going to work on. This is what we're doing. Before the Shelby County v. Holder decision we talked about earlier, Alaska was covered by the Voting Rights Act. It feels like a giant game of whack-a-mole that as soon as we finish handling language assistance, up comes voter ID. You handle voter ID issues, here comes a ballot collection ban, and then there's gonna be a new residency requirement. The other, you know, we see strange things pop up in red states and blue states, and in places where people stereotypically assume it might be easier. One county in California told residents of one reservation that they could not register to vote. Most of them were not eligible. And the reason was because they lived in mobile homes. And the county said, if you live in a mobile home, you are not a permanent resident of this county. And so we see discrimination, voter suppression, uh, as being very adaptable to the situations in the various counties and states across the United States. And they will tailor it to you specifically. This episode isn't comprehensive. We only have so much time. But what's important is that voter suppression is happening everywhere, to all kinds of people, but mostly to black and brown people. And while in most places voter suppression doesn't look like it did in the past, in some places, like at polling places where Native Americans vote, it does. Remember, Chicken Coop. That was in South Dakota. 
Since Shelby County v. Holder, the case we talked about at the beginning of the episode, voting has become more difficult across the United States, even though a majority of Americans support making voting easier. When we're back, we'll look toward the November election and hear from Lydia Camarillo, president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, an organization that has registered millions of Latinx voters since its founding in 1974. Making it easier to vote is popular. In 2018, Pew found that about two-thirds of Americans support automatically registering all eligible citizens to vote. But what about voter fraud? Here's Natalie Landreth. So uh, voter fraud is like a unicorn, like you've heard about it, but you've never actually seen it before. It is so rare. It is so rare that something like this happens. And there have been a couple high profile cases, uh, even in post offices recently. But in the scheme of things, it is so rare. It is being exploited as a reason for not expanding access to voting. But, you know, don't believe the hype. It's not it's not a thing, as I would say. It's not a thing. It's not really widespread enough to warrant the kind of suppression that it's causing in return. It's an excuse. It's a red herring. A Washington Post study from 2014 found just 31 credible claims of voter fraud out of 1 billion votes cast between 2000 and 2014. It's not a thing. Making it harder to vote, however, is a thing. And Stacey Abrams sees this as being the purview of one party in particular. Republicans are smart. And they've been thinking about this for 20 years. We haven't been as focused as we need to on my side of the aisle, but we're trying to catch up. And I think we're doing a good job. But we've got to think about the, the connective tissue is this. The right to vote is your ability to pick the leaders who speak for you. Those leaders, especially at the federal level, get to confirm the judges who decide whether the laws that get passed get to stay as laws. So if you can control who gets to make the laws, who gets to enforce the laws, and who gets to adjudicate the laws, then you basically, you're controlling the whole kit and caboodle. Lydia Camarillo is the president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, one of the largest nonpartisan Latinx voter participation organizations in the United States. SV Rep has registered millions of Latinx voters since it was founded in 1974, and Lydia Camarillo is doing her best to ensure that Latinx voting rights are protected as the November election approaches. I anticipate that America uh, on election day and prior to that, because we have early, uh, early voting in some states, including Texas, I anticipate that we're going to find people that are told you're not registered to vote. I anticipate that people are going to be told you don't have the right voter ID in states that have the ID, even though there's opportunities for you to provide several several uh, documents. They may tell you that you don't have the right to vote, and 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 I have to tell you personally, every time I go to my polling site, I'm told that I'm not registered to vote. But I know the rules, I know the laws. I've been doing this for a long time, and so I patiently and with a smile ask the the the, the young lady, and she's usually older than I am. Um, I ask her to please find me, and she'll once again, she'll say, no, you're not on the list. And once I say it on the third or fourth time, depending on my patience of the moment, I will, um, I tell them, if you don't find me, I'm going to call the media because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a voter. I've been voting. I know I'm registered. I've lived in this house for 20-something years. Sure enough, they find me, and I'm voting. And I mention this example because there are going to be situations where people are told 
that they're not registered to vote when in fact they are? And how do we how do we capture that type of discrimination and suppression, voter suppression, when there's no evidence other than you being a voter who is actively seeking and checking and making sure? Make sure that you're allowed to vote. We bumped this episode up because we wanted to make sure you had a chance to check your registration. In some states, like Texas, you must register to vote at least 30 days before an election for you to be eligible to vote in that election. 30 days before Tuesday, November 3rd is in October. That's like in a few weeks. So how should we contend with this abuse of our democratic process? I think there's several ways we can look at this. We can look at it with um, despair and um, and and go home and, and close our doors and go to sleep. Or we can understand the suppression that takes place, systematic suppression, voter suppression, and fight at it at every level. Uh, communities have to be vigilant that, uh, for example, we're about to have a most important election in our, in our time, and they should be checking with their elections office to see if the county has will be allowing uh, for voting booths and voting places to be in the heart of the communities that are Black and Latino and Asian and other communities, because that's one way they, they also dilute the vote is that they will they might have all the same number of voting places that they did in the last time even before the Shelby ruling took place in 2013 however they may all be placed in in places where voters are going to vote anyways but nothing uh no no poly, no voting place where blacks and latinos live or in voting places where uh there there's no buses there's no routes for people that can get there so those are the things that people have to worry about. So it is a difficult time. It is a time of of uh, challenges, but it's also a promising time. I mean, this will be the election that will have uh, the most Latinos ever voting. Uh, and combined with uh, Black voters and Asian voters and people um, that are that of like minds that care about families and being respected and care about uh, making sure that we're not treated with uh, racism and all the different um, barriers that exist, I think collectively they can make a big difference. Uh, the elections are important for a number of reasons. Not only not only do we decide who will be governing us in the next cycle, but the next president of the United States will determine the next who will be the next Supreme Court justice. They will be appointing uh, judges that determine laws laws that matter to us, including the Voting Rights Act. Back to Stacey Abrams. We've known about voter suppression. We've seen it happen in election after election. President Obama, after his second election, he said, it's not a good thing that people stood in five-hour lines to vote for me. That meant that they didn't have the resources they needed. He wasn't celebratory because people had to give up a whole day's wage to vote. He was angry because that meant that they weren't being given equal access to the right to vote that more privileged people took for granted. I feel the same way. I didn't get to be governor, and that's, that's, it is what it is. But what makes me enraged is that people tried, and they were told by their government, you don't matter. And that should not happen. If someone decides not to vote because they just don't care, then that's their prerogative. But if you want to vote in the United States, if you are eligible, you should be able to do so. Voting is not going to automatically change all the bad, but it's the only way we start to create the good. 
We cannot just talk about voter suppression when it's convenient. We've got to talk about it all the time at every level of government because voter suppression is most effective when it is hyper-local, when it is not just the presidency, but it's your inability to elect someone for your school board who will actually invest in that overcrowded, dilapidated school because they actually believe those children have the right to an education. So we can't keep focusing only on the White House. We've got to focus on the White House and the State House and the Schoolhouse and everything in between. And that's my mission, that we talk about voter suppression, but we make sure that people understand it's your right and we're going to fight alongside you to make your right real. If voting wasn't important, if your vote didn't matter, why do you think so many people would be working to make it harder for you to vote? And how would you say voting rights determine the allocation of power in American democracy? So it is the ultimate source. It, it, it determines the representational district that you're in. It determines who's going to win that House seat where people make decisions for you on everything from your taxes to pandemic relief. It determines that Senate seat. It determines the Electoral College and which way the presidency goes. A lot of these things that you are experiencing on a daily basis today, uh, restrictions, pandemic response, access to testing, unemployment benefits, uh, whether you're going to get uh, benefits if you work in a restaurant or bar that's been forcibly closed, all of those were made by people who are elected. And that's why you need to participate in that. But your most important vote may be the vote you cast for somebody who will represent your neighborhood at the local or state level. Local and state elections, people talk about presidency, they talk about Senate seats or whatever, but your local and state elections are so incredibly important for a whole host of reasons. Your local water district, your school board, whatever it may be, because this is also where a lot of other voting restrictions are made in the broader discourse. So to become involved in local elections is also incredibly important because those people are also making decisions that affect your life. They're just doing it on perhaps a smaller scale, but still directly impacting you. Well, I think that if we look at it historically, and it's no different now, it's always been about power. I think we have to remember that we have to organize at the local level in each state and understand each state's uh, possibilities and its state's challenges. And then you take them one at a time. And when you can, you do it at the statewide level. And when you can, you do it nationally. I want to go back to Alaska. Let me give you one example here. So in Alaska, once we had established that language assistance was important, and required under the law in federal court. And the court ordered language assistance to be provided. And that meant ballots in English and in the native languages covered by the case. So when voters went to vote that year, guess what happened? Turnout went up 20 points. It went up 20 points. And then what happened? They elected for the first time, the very first native statewide representative in Lieutenant Governor Byron Malott. That created a direct line for the native community to the highest office in the state, and it changed lives. Something as simple as access to ballots in native languages literally shifted how a community was represented in government. That's huge. 
Voter suppression is all about power, and often maintaining the power that some groups enjoy at the expense of others. For the most part, in 2020, it doesn't look like it did in the 1950s. It's legalese, administrative, almost benign. The spelling of your name on your ballot is different than the spelling of your name on your ID. Well, sorry, you're not going to be able to vote. The rules are the rules. And we haven't even talked about why elections in the United States are held on a Tuesday, a work day. When we learn about democracy in America, we learn about a system that ensures all Americans have a voice. A system where every citizen has an equal voice in government, where each of us can, through representative democracy, determine how the nation is run. Unfortunately, that is not how American democracy works. A vote is power, and because of that, there will always be attempts to control it. I don't want to get preachy, so here's Natalie Landreth. If you don't vote because you think it's not going to make a difference, if you don't vote, it's definitely not, you're definitely not making a difference. So it's totally self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, there is no such thing as like sort of not voting or sitting it out. You're making a choice not to vote, and your choice is ceding power to someone else to act on your behalf, and they may not be acting in your interests. But if you choose not to say anything, you definitely aren't going to be able to make a change. And voter suppression? In the marathon that you're running, you may fall. You may lose a battle, but you're going to continue. These barriers are real. They exist. And we're in it for the fight. We will break them all. Little by little, it's not just about registering somebody and turning them out to vote. It's about people demanding justice and integrity and their right to be treated with uh, dignity through their vote. On the next episode of Who Is, we are going back to the world's power players the people who exert an influence on the global order of things. And there's one person we haven't covered yet who allegedly has been pulling the strings in America. And he's not even American. It's Who Is Vladimir Putin next week. A sincere thank you to our guests, Stacey Abrams, 2018 Democratic candidate for governor of Georgia and former minority leader of the Georgia House of Representatives. She's the founder of Fair Fight and Fair Count, and her new book is Our Time Is Now, Power, Purpose, and the Fight for a Fair America. Lydia Camarillo, president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project and William C. Velasquez Institute. And Natalie Landreth, a senior staff attorney at the Native American Rights Fund. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Kenzie Clark and Laura Tillman are our associate producers. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Adakuder. At Now This, Tina Xoros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to PJ Evans, Matt McDonough, Devin Rodrino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. If you like the show, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and tell your friends. We have a slick six episodes left in season two, and stay tuned for what's happening next. 